everyone, I'm Luke, and I will introduce someone else later on, but let's start with this. A story has a plot. A lot of our stories come in the forms of movies or shows or books, and there's a plot. You meet some characters, and those characters meet some kind of conflict, which drives the plot forward until it gets to the point of resolution. The conflict is resolved, and the story ends. Now, if that story began with a character who is single, they're unmarried, not in any kind of romantic relationship, how do we usually expect the plot of that story to resolve? Yeah, with the person getting married or being in a relationship on the path toward marriage. That's the resolution. She gets the guy or he gets the girl. And it's the thing we wanted to happen all along. Our souls are restless until it rests with these two people getting together. Classic romantic comedy, we've seen them. We have our favorites and our familiars or a romance novel or this kind of plot. It's embedded into the TV series as we watch or, or reality TV shows about dream weddings and every kiss begins with K. It's everywhere. So, so many places where that basic plot line is unfolding, where the resolution, the, the destination point toward which this story is aimed is a romantic union between two people. A marriage, that's the focus, it's the target. It's the solution, even, you might say, which, when viewed that way, means that the problem in all these stories is what? Singleness. That's the thing that has to be overcome, fixed, so to speak. Yeah, it's like the story invites us all to, to gather around and look at this, uh, this specimen, this single person, and it draws us to the consensus. Well, well this, this isn't right. Clearly, this won't do. What we need around here is Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright to fix this and get life back in order. Okay, now, now I, I'm not saying those things, you don't quote me on that. I, I'm trying to identify what's going on in what I think has become for us a powerful plot, a significant story, and even a story of significance. Meaning that plot line is so common and so ingrained that some of us have interpreted the, the journey of going from singleness to marriage to be a journey of moving from insignificance to significance, from incomplete to complete. And the question is, is that really the case? Is that true to reality? If I'm a kid, should I grow up believing that? If I have kids, should I condition them to believe that? If I'm 30 and single, should that storyline define the goals and hopes that I have? If I'm 50 and single again, where does that leave me? We're, we're trying to, to get real. We're trying to get relationships, to get a real sense of, of what they're about and how they work best. And it would seem we have some real work cut out for us, especially today as we talk about singleness. Let's get real about singleness. Now, I'm not single, and I'm not the only voice that we'll be speaking today as we try to hear God's word to us. Sarah Willie will come in just a bit, not to, speak, not to speak for all single people or only two single people, but to share some important perspective and some godly perspective that will help all of us getting, get a handle on what's real. Let's start by trying to focus that perspective through what we, we could call our Jesus lenses, because we don't just interpret the world through what we see through the silver screen, or at least I hope not. I think of that old hymn, Be Thou My Vision, O Lord of My Heart. Yeah. Yes, Lord, be our vision because we want to see what's real. And specifically today, in light of all the plot lines that have unfolded before our eyes, when we think about being single, what does Jesus bring into focus? Does singleness have any significance or is it an obstacle to significance? Can singleness be fulfilling or, or does it, by definition, keep one from fulfillment? 
Help us see what's real, Lord Jesus. Now, when you, when you look at Jesus, one of the first things you might notice is he was single. The storyline of Jesus' life, it came to a climax with him gathered with his close companions. I'm your master and teacher, of course, Jesus said, but I don't call you servants. Rather, I, I call you friends. Jesus nurtured lots of healthy relationships with other people, none of whom he dated or married. And then he exemplified the most profound act of love the world has ever known, not in the context of a romantic relationship, but greater love has no one than this, that a person laid down their life for their friends. It's what Jesus did. It's what he said. It's what he, what he did. He, the, the most significant thing ever accomplished on the earth was done by a single person, namely Jesus. Now, there's a lot more that we could say there for sure, but, but you might say, well, I'm not Jesus. <laughs> right, uh, me neither. But Jesus, in his life and teaching and in his death and resurrection, it has implications for all of us. And they're quite striking, actually. Uh, we get the first glimpse of, I'll say, uh, a relational revolution. One day, Jesus is teaching a room full of people. And I I'm sure the lecture was scintillating and, and, and insightful. Like this one right now, probably. Um, no. But there was uh, this interruption that happened, and I'm guessing that that actually might have been the most memorable thing for those who were in the room. Uh, I'll just read it. It's in Matthew chapter, Matthew chapter 12, and Jesus, he's there, he's talking to the crowd. And his mothers and, and brothers, they stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told Jesus, your mother and brothers are standing outside, they want to speak to you. And Jesus replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, first, we don't need to see this as Jesus dissing his family, as much as he is elevating those who aren't his blood relatives. And, and I don't know what you hear in the words like mothers and brothers and family, what, what that means to you. Uh, if it means uh, emotional bonds and practical support and a source of strength, if it's marked by trust and security and acceptance, if family adds valuable deposits to your identity and self-esteem and your sense of purpose, if it's love and encouragement and even if not perfect, a generally nurturing context that contributes to your flourishing and fulfillment, it might be something like that for you. It might be nothing like that. Okay, but, but here's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, regardless, at least all of that and more is now available to those who are in step with me. Uh, no matter your bloodlines, regardless of what family you're born in or are married into, which for them and for us to a degree would have implications on your social status and your authority and your opportunity. And Jesus says, None of that defines you in the realist sense. Your last name doesn't mark out your truest identity, nor does who you are or aren't married to or the child of. You get a relationship with me that carries significance beyond any other relationship you have. And the richness and the blessing that comes when you have a true, deep, common bond, it's not restricted to family connections. You better hope you get a good family. No. It can be found among the diversity of people of all strata and gender and status and culture who are connected to Jesus. Everyone in that room, 
the marrieds, the, the singles, the teenagers, the, the Jews, the non-Jews, the experts, the simpletons. Everyone in that room was elevated to a new and identical status because of Jesus. Value, belonging, purpose, meaning in life has first to do with your relationship with Jesus, not your relationship status. So, the rest of the New Testament says, and, and it says it like over and over again because we seem to have a lot of trouble with this. It says, stop pretending and believing that any other thing other than Jesus and being called by his name and part of his family, stop pretending and believing that any other thing makes you important, gives you value, ultimately fulfills. You know why the, the rest of the New Testament says that? Oh, you're dying to know. I, I can tell. Well, I'll tell you why. Just, just keep going here. Okay. Paul, another single person, he wrote most of it. And Paul's a guy who was so overwhelmed by what he found in Jesus to the point that it just uh, reframed everything in the world that he thought mattered. He had uh, family pedigree and education and rank and accomplishments and was virtually flawless in religious protocol. And then when he met Jesus, he was like, wow, none of those things are the reason that Jesus loves me, validates me, dignifies me, elevates me, and even trusts me with his family name and vocation. So that amazing realization propels Paul on a mission all over the known world to unite these little communities of people around Jesus, people of all different backgrounds and bloodlines, now finding significance and purpose in a new family, a new identity, something of such beauty and power that it might just be the hope of the world. And as these uh, Jesus-centered communities, th this is called the church, by the way, in case you, you didn't recognize what we're talking about. These Jesus-centered communities, as they grow, and work out what it means to be the family of God and invite more people into that family, they're often tempted to believe things other than, to believe that things other than Jesus are the real measure for what counts and who belongs and what our goals should be. And of course, as, as we can see and as Paul could see, any time the church does that, they become much less than the hope of the world. You know, we, we could put it back in the terms that we started with. The church was constantly being tempted to believe other stories, other plot lines about what's real. Like, oh, 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 the conflict, the plot conflict is I'm Jewish and you're not. And the resolution should be you become Jewish. You eat different food and you dress different than, than I do. Well, what counts most is that we all do it the same. We have to be uniform. You're poor and insignificant. That's the problem. Becoming rich, that would make you significant. You don't have control. Oh, life will resolve if you get control and dominate others. You're single and hopeless. Marriage is your only hope for fulfillment. All of these things. Anytime Paul gets a whiff of any kind of story like this that tries to define reality apart from Jesus, I mean, he calls it out, says what it is. That's, that's not real. Anytime people's value is being determined by 
something other than their identity as a child of God. Paul doesn't keep silent. And so the point here today to get us started is that any storyline that is peddling ideas like a person needs to be uh, married to be complete is simply not grounded in what we learn from Jesus. Any belief that leads to treating single people as second rate or or shoves them to the side of our concern, that, that must be rooted out. Any vision for a full life that just assumes that marriage is a prerequisite has not been held up to the light of Jesus, nor of Paul, two of the most significant influencers in the history of the world. It's ignorant of both the lives that they modeled and the things that they taught. So it leads me to start us by uh, thinking it's important for us to make a couple things clear. Number one, marriage. Marriage is awesome. Okay, and it's part of God's design and it can be part of a flourishing life and we want a high vision of marriage. We're going to talk about it in a few weeks, actually. Anything less would would be unchristian, would be less than what Christ would want for us. And number two, I don't think single people need to be pitied. But I do think that the church needs to repent anytime we have made anything, marriage or otherwise, more important than Jesus. So I would be very sorry if you're a single person and you were drawn to Jesus because he's awesome and you were in search of a a fulfilling life and somehow the, the church made it appear that that was only available if you got married first. Or if when the the church gathered around you in your singleness, you felt as if their consensus was clear that that you're a problem that needs to be fixed because that, that is very much less than a real Christian vision for life. So again, that's what we're in search of today, in search of a better vision, a a real one, a Jesus-centered one. And we'll invite Sarah to come and help us continue to focus our perspective, not just for those who aren't married, but for all of us, as we try to together be this unique community bound together across differences who effectively love and care for and empower those who are in our midst and those whom God would want to invite. Sarah. Well, thanks, Luke. And hey, everyone. You know, the church is a beautiful thing, and we all have a responsibility as part of the body of Christ to seek out and celebrate the blessings that each part of it brings. But we also have a responsibility to understand and empathize with the challenges that also come with each part. So this isn't just a message about singleness. This is a message about us, about all of us, me and you, So please don't miss what's happening here and what God is trying to show us because you don't check off the box that says single on your census report. And as Luke has just said, we're going to have a message on marriage in just a few weeks. And so if you are single, please don't miss that message either. I plead with you not to miss that message because that one is also a message about us, about me, and about you. So I'll start by saying and noting that I'm just one type of single person. And I won't even try to speak on behalf of the whole community of people that are single. There are some of us who want to be married and long for it. There are some of us that have absolutely zero desire to be married. There are some of us who have been married and are now divorced and others who have lost their spouses. And each 
brings its own joys and blessings and burdens. But for me, I just want to be clear that I'm speaking from the perspective and from the lens of someone who longs to be married one day, has never been married, and I'm 30 and, and single in that. And like Luke said, singles don't need to be pitied. I agree with that. There are things about singleness that are good. And unlike any other season of life, singleness can be fulfilling and energizing with lots of opportunities for life and connectedness. But at the same time, just as life is like for all of us, regardless of what phase of life we're in, there are seasons that are good and there are seasons that are challenging. And in the seasons that are challenging, it's okay to be honest and name what those difficulties are, especially for singleness in light of a culture that would suggest that you are incomplete, crippled, and unlovable if you are single. So yes, there are seasons that feel completely and utterly disconnected from the rest of the world. And the present cultural narrative doesn't help at all. It actually exasperates that feeling of being disconnected. And for those of us that are in that season, questions like, well, what am I going to do with my time today? It's noon, and it's Saturday, and I've already done everything that I planned on doing today. Come to the surface. Or what about questions like, I, I hear that there's a new restaurant in town, and I would love to go to it, but who am I supposed to ask to go to that restaurant with? And of course, it, I'm not going to go by myself because that would just be terrible to have everybody staring at me sitting at this table all alone pitying me. Or I have this problem at work, but the only people that I actually interact with are people from work. So who am I supposed to talk with about this problem? And it gets discouraging over time. You feel disconnected, and then questions about your value now start to creep in. Do I even matter? Does anybody actually really care about me. So the standout difficulty that comes with singleness is loneliness. I've heard it described this way, and I think it just summarizes what this type of loneliness feels like. And it's just this longing for a go-to person, having someone to share the ups and downs and the mundane parts of life with. It's the daily journeying together, having somebody at the beginning of the day say, hey, I hope you have a great day, and having someone at the end of the day to ask how your day went. There's a painful clarity of the lack, feeling like there's something that's not there that is supposed to be there, and our culture says that the solution to that problem is by finding specifically a romantic partner to fill that. And when that thought is saturated into our media, we start to see it everywhere. We see it on the TV screens, on the movie screens, in the advertisements, and then we look around in our own lives and it seems like everybody is already paired off and everybody already has someone that loves them, except for me. So then we think, well, then what's wrong with me? Why am I not good enough to have someone love me like that? God, have you forgotten about me? Do you even know that I'm here? Hello, I'm here. And that's a dark place to be. And sometimes we feel like we've been in that place for far too long. At times it can feel like we've been wandering around in this barren wilderness, similar to the Israelites, wondering, why am I stuck here? How long, oh Lord, will I have to go to weddings and barbecues alone? 
How long, O oh Lord, will I have to celebrate all of my friends' milestones with their engagements and their, mar- their weddings and their marriages and their babies while I wait? How long, O oh Lord, will I have to carry the burden alone of my job and my finances and my housework? How long, O oh Lord, will I be left stuck here? And like the Israelites, we can get so fixated on the challenges and the discomfort of the wilderness that we might just actually miss what God is doing in the wilderness. While the Israelites were in the wilderness waiting to get into the promised land, God was actually forming them to become a community that was far beyond and totally different than anything that they ever imagined. And the only way to enter into the promised land was to leave behind what was and to allow God to transform them into something new. For us to not miss what God is doing, we need to be anchored in what is real and what is true. What we cannot do is let those very real and challenging feelings distort our view of reality and, or cause us to drift away from what is true. So here are three things that are true. You are valuable regardless of your marital status. If you are single, you are valuable and whole just the way you are because God made you that way. If you are married, you are valuable and whole just the way you are because God made you that way. Your spouse does not complete you. Number two, marriage will not solve your problems. So be on guard of believing that lie. Something is missing, but that missing something is bigger than feeling disconnected from a mate and more of being disconnected from a community, from a whole. And there is a vision that God's church can be that community that we are a part of and that whole that we are connected to. And if we take it down to a personal level too, we all got problems, we all got junk and mess. So instead of telling yourself that you're gonna stop doing those bad habits or you'll be better once you meet someone, Do the work now. If you envision yourself being better one day, then begin the journey of acknowledging your weakness and your need for God now. And then if or when you get a significant other, don't stop doing the work. Because number three, your marital status does not determine when God is done doing his work in you. We are on a journey, all of us, towards becoming more like Jesus. So if you are to be single for every day of your life, you are still on a journey of becoming like Jesus every day of your life. And if you are married for any portion of your life, you are on a journey of becoming more like Jesus every day of your life. This matters because our marital status cannot and it does not determine what God is doing in us and when God is done doing his work in us. At 30, I would have expected to be married with a couple of kids already. And even though my life hasn't played out how I scripted it to be, that has not stopped God from showing up and revealing these truths to me about my value. And furthermore, he has actually heaped on tons of blessings in unexpected but powerful ways. On a simple level, There's this freedom and flexibility of my schedule. I can go to the gym whenever I want. If I need to work late, I don't have to worry about how that's going to affect my spouse or my kids. If there's an opportunity to go on a trip with friends for a weekend or to hang out with friends spontaneously on one night during the week, 
I don't have anyone to answer to or ask, or I don't have a family calendar that I need to check to make sure and see if that works. So there's this freedom to choose how I fill my time. And I've also had opportunities to learn a whole bunch of new things like martial arts and joining sports leagues and language learning and even career and educational opportunities. I used to think that a quiet home was actually a curse, that it was so empty. But I've come to learn actually from my married friends that it is actually a gift. The fact that I get to wake up slowly and have a, this lovely cup of coffee and read my Bible or watch some TV uninterrupted in the morning. One of my married friends told me that she actually doesn't need an alarm clock anymore because she has the joy of this thing called a human alarm clock that comes and runs into her room before the sun comes up saying, mommy, 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 it is time to be up. And so after hearing that, I've learned to very much cherish the quiet home that I have and see it as a gift in this season. But it goes deeper than that. Luke mentioned Paul. He was a single guy that wrote a lot of the New Testament. And there's this one time, actually, that I was reading in the book of Corinthians. He wrote this letter to the Corinthian church. And in chapter 7, Paul actually writes a portion about singleness. I was amazed the first time that I read this a couple years ago. And in fact, Paul actually says that he wishes that more people were like him in singleness. And he goes on to speak, in verse, starting in verse 32, to those who are, who are unmarried, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs and how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are now divided. An unmarried woman or a virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. And I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way that is undivided devotion to the Lord. And that is not to say that there is anything wrong with marriage. In fact, marriage is good, so good, and Paul writes so much about marriage. However, he is reframing our thinking around singleness, that it is not something that is crippling or puts you in chains, but actually that's something that is freeing and liberating, and there's opportunity. Listen, we all need to make investments of time and energy. So if you are married, it is a very good thing that you are investing time and energy into your spouse. You should be doing that. However, however if you are single, there's freedom of where to invest your time and where to invest your energy. And you can have at the top of your list things that are fun and exciting and meaningful and make a difference. There's freedom to do more and experience more and to be singularly focused on the things that God is doing in you and in the world around you. And I've experienced this firsthand. It's a good gift. And on a deeper level, the work that I've seen God do in me has been transformational and has grown me into a person I never imagined that I would ever be. For me, transformation has looked like being empowered to do things on my own that I never imagined that I would do without a spouse. Things like going to eat at a restaurant by myself or solo traveling or buying a house on my own. Transformation has looked like learning a lot about myself, learning that I am a whole person first, not because somebody came along and completed me. God created me and you to be whole people, and a season of singleness is a special time to discover and allow God to show you how he made you. Transformation has looked 
a lot like learning how to be honest with myself in the presence of God about where I feel weak and hurt and vulnerable. And I used to view singleness as one of those weaknesses. And seeing that God brings forth healing and transformation and power through vulnerability in his presence has been so important to know and learn. Transformation has looked like discovering the depth and connection that can occur in relationships that are not romantic relationships. Deep friendships and mentorships and family relationships have formed and been strengthened in a way that I had not known was possible before. And transformation has looked a lot like learning that this hole that is inside of me is not because I don't have a spouse, but is because I'm separated from God and I will continue to be separated from God on this side of heaven. And that hole inside is actually God's little homing device or GPS signal to reorient me back to him. So instead of trying to fill that hole with a person, I've learned to go to seek God to fill that hole. So there's an invitation for all of us today, married and single, for all of us to know and be reminded that our value comes from God. And also that relationships are so good, relationships of all kinds, because God has designed us for relationships, for friendships, for working relationships, and yes, for romantic and married relationships. So to everyone, I challenge us, let's pay attention to how we're feeding our spirit daily. We already know that culture influences the way that we think and we dream and we act. And if we can all agree that cultural, culture perpetuates this narrative that you are incomplete, incomplete until you found the one, then we need to be aware of how that stuff affects our thinking. I think it's safe to assume that we all come in contact with the myth of the one every day, whether we are aware of it or not, because it is saturated so deeply into the fabric of our society. So let's pay attention to the messaging around us and mirroring that up with God's truth about relationships and our identity so that we can discern what we are absorbing and believing to be true. For something practical, if you are feeling a season of loneliness and disconnection, then pay attention to the things that you watch on TV or the things that you listen to on Spotify or the things that you see on your Instagram feed and see how that makes you feel. If what you are consuming is causing you more pain and perpetuating loneliness, then acknowledge how it's influencing your mind and your spirit, and then make a change. Don't just keep going back to what is familiar. Romans 12:2 says, do not be conformed by the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is his good and pleasing and perfect will. So get in God's word, get in a godly community. Groups are a great place to start if you don't know where to meet Jesus-focused people. And you can sign up easily for one of those on the website. Over time, the truths of God will begin to take root in you and you'll be able to look back and see the fruit of God's work in you. Half the battle is recognizing where the lies in this world enter in you and influence you. So for the short, short term, if you catch yourself being sucked in, here's what you can do. Change the environment. Go, go out for a walk. Get outside. Go, go to the gym. You can join a meetup group. Meet some new people with a common interest or watch a documentary on a subject that interests you and something that's not romance-oriented. Try a new skill or take up a new project. Just try new things and make 
that change. And to my single friends, you are valuable and whole and created and loved by God. However, your married friends have pressures and demands that are unique to them because they are married. So be kind and generous to them. Learn to be in relationship with them. Love their spouse and love their kids too. And then check yourself when you become envious of their marriage because it's not their fault that they're married. They need us in so many ways. They need us to be their advocates. They need us to champion their marriages. And one of the ways that they actually need us is to remind them that they are individuals with unique interests and passions and that by investing in those interests, they actually helps their, it actually helps their personal health and makes their marriage healthier. And then invite them to do things. Just because they're married and have kids doesn't mean that they don't want to have a life outside of that too. They just might not have the headspace to do all of the planning and inviting. So it sure would be refreshing for some of your married friends to receive an invitation from you. They also need us to encourage them to go on dates. So if you notice that some of your married friends haven't been on a date for a while, offer to watch their kids, kick them out of the house, say, go, go on a date, go spend time with each other and watch their kids for them. Invest and build relationships with their kids because they're sure going to need you when those teenage years hit. Just love your married friends well. And to married people, you too are valuable and whole and created and loved by God. However, you too also need to learn how to be in relationship with your friends who are single. When you got married, things changed, as they should. But don't trick yourself into thinking that your friendships are going to be the same as they were before. So take some time to relearn the dynamics of your friendships in this new season of your life and know that we are relearning the relationship with you as well that includes your spouse and your kids too. We want to be your advocates. Just be mindful, please, of how much you talk about your spouse and kids. When all you talk about and think about is your spouse and kids, we feel like we don't have a place in your life anymore and it gets hard to relate and connect. So just remember us. Remember that we don't automatically have people to spend time with. And even more than that, remember that we don't automatically have people to share life with. So of course, share life with your spouse. It just also means a lot to us when you wanna share your life with us too. So let's talk about life, let's do life, let's do, talk about normal things, fun things, thoughtful things. Schedule a babysitter and invite us to go out, go out without us asking. Invite us to join you for your kid's big soccer game or the big lacrosse game or the play because we will come and we will cheer your kid on. Just include us in your life. And also be mindful and remember that our lives look different from yours. We're all in this together. We can't forget that. We're all on this journey together of becoming more like Jesus. And together we get to build a whole community. One church made up of different people of, with lots of different gifts and strengths and challenges and burdens as well. So as we close, I'd like to leave us with these words from our guy, Paul. That is, he says to the Corinthian church, but God has put this body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. And if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it.
Let's pray. Father God, you have created such a special thing with your church to imagine such a diverse group of people coming together for a common purpose with a charge to love one another well is amazing. And we're grateful to be a part of it, God. Holy Spirit, we ask that you put this body of Christ together, healing any division within us. Teach us how to listen well, God, and consider others who are different than us. And let us continue to be drawn towards the example of Jesus, of living a life that is whole in the truth that you have made us whole. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Mm -hmm.